Welcome to Sport Faith Life. I'm Chad Carlson. And I'm Brian Bolt. We're two guys from rival schools who came together with one common purpose, to think deeply about sport and faith. We're sports scholars, we're coaches, and we're competitive athletes, or at least we were. And together, we've created Sport Faith Life, a conversation that meets at the intersection of sport and faith. Today on Sport Faith Life, we talk with Elizabeth Bounds, who is currently pursuing her PhD in Baylor University's Department of Psychology and Neuroscience. Previously, Elizabeth earned her MDiv at Baylor's Truett Theological Seminary, and before that, Elizabeth was a standout two-sport athlete in soccer and basketball at Hope College. Yes, Hope College. Elizabeth's research is broadly about virtues, character development, and spirituality in sport, making her an excellent choice for a keynote address at the Third Global Congress on Sport and Christianity at Ridley Hall in Cambridge, UK, just a few weeks from now. We have so much to talk about, so let's get started. We're so excited to have Elizabeth Bounds with us today on the podcast. Elizabeth, so great to have you here. We'd like to ask you to begin about sport in your life. So happy to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Um, sports are have arguably been one of the most influential spheres of my life. I always say that I became a soccer player before I became anything else. So I, I played competitive soccer all growing up and loved it. I got perhaps a little bit fizzled, a little bit burned out as I was entering high school. And then at the same time, my high school basketball coach um, became my hero. Even to this day, he, um, Coach Randall was the most, um, one of the most influential people in my life and just inspired me to always want to work really hard and be the most encouraging teammate. So I really got bit with the basketball bug in high school and um, really wanted to continue playing both basketball and soccer in college and was really privileged and fortunate to be able to do so um, at Hope College. And so played for two amazing coaches and two really remarkable programs um, throughout college and really loved my experience. I like to joke that I was a college kid with recess because I just loved getting to, I loved being able to compete. Um, I love competition, but I also really loved the grind. I loved um, the day in and day out pursuit. Um, so yeah, playing, playing was a huge part of my sense of self and my identity. And then following um, college, I've been able to be in a few different coaching roles and still stay close to the games that I love. So I've done a lot of different adolescent coaching in both soccer and basketball. And then um, I was in a grad program right after college. And during that time, I was in the volunteer assistant coach role for Baylor women's soccer. So I was able to still be close to the game, um, but in a completely new role. Um, and that really, that grew me a ton, <laughs> um, in my, both in my knowledge of the game and then in leadership as well. So sports, I wouldn't be the person I am without them. And I love them. And I love, I really do love the person that they've made me to be. 
I uh, love that answer. Love how you've articulated it. I'm thinking that these first two questions we ask you probably are hard to separate in your life, but the next question, it will probably involve some answers related to sport. What, what's faith like in your life? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Honestly, like most of my faith development in my whole life, even to this day, have really come through education and sport. So my experience with the local church has never been negative, um, but it has really it has in my life, definitely growing up to been more neutral and, and really most of my faith development has come through education, being able to think really critically and intellectually about my faith. And then a lot of my faith development has come in athletic contexts. So like, I really feel like I learned who God was and therefore who I am through sports. And it was about, it was about being around really high character and caring leaders who were pointing me in that direction, um, as well as I was a beneficiary of a handful of different sports ministries while I was in college that really pushed me to debunk any sort of sacred secular divide and really work through what it meant for me to worship God on the court on the field. Um, and, and once I was able to figure out how to do that with sports, which were, you know, one of the biggest domains of my life, once I could figure out how to worship God in, in sports, that helped me translate it to the other areas of my life. Once I figured out what it meant like to worship God with my sweat, I could figure out how to, what it meant to worship God with my, you know, data analysis, just for example. Um, so sports have, have been, not only so impactful for my sense of self and my character and my relationships and, and so many areas of my life, but it was really a really big area where God met me and continued to mold me and was really faithful to me and um, really was teaching me who he was and therefore who I was through sports. Thanks for kind of giving us a glimpse into who you are there, Elizabeth. It's great to have you on the podcast. And you're starting to, you know, really dive into that intersection between sport and faith, but really more of an integration of sport and faith that I want to talk about in greater depth. But before we get there, I wonder if you could, you know, help our audience get to know you a little bit. Is there something that maybe is a little off the beaten path, something that we might not expect that you could tell us about yourself that helps us get to know you? Sure. One thing that many people don't know is that foreign languages were my first academic love. So um, following college, I studied in seminary, um, so I was able to study sport ministry, sport theology, and then now I'm in a doctoral program for social psychology. So I, I'm not in foreign languages now, but growing up, that was my favorite subject in school. I had the most incredible high school foreign language teacher who instilled in me a passion for foreign languages and learning new languages. And so I love learning new languages. I studied Spanish and French in high school and college. And so when people, you know, will ask the question like, what would be your alternative life or what would you be doing now if you weren't doing what you're currently doing? My answer is always that it would be something in foreign languages. I would be living in a different country or I would, you know, maybe do some like 
government job with high level translation. I, I really love foreign languages and learning secondary languages. You know, that's a real gift to be able to acquire and, um, you know, learn and grow and, and get to a point of actually being fluent in, in world languages. And uh, like you said, you've kind of steered your life in a somewhat different direction, but somehow I feel like it's going to come back, right? And you just oh. never know what's going to happen <laughs> with not. world language. So uh, yeah, you just sort of tuck that away and see what happens. Um one of the things you're going to be doing, traveling to a country with a very different language, England, uh, very soon. Yeah, um, you'll never be able to understand the people there. They're uh, uh, very confusing. Uh, but you'll be traveling there for the Global Congress, the third Global Congress on Christianity and Sport. And uh, you'll be doing a keynote address. Uh, thank you for doing that. That'll be, that'll be exciting. And one of the things that uh, we wanted to talk about was just how you got there. In other words, you decided, I love sport, uh, my faith integration seems to be connected, and then you started pursuing some things in your life that brought you sort of this place. So, so maybe before we get to actually the topic, could you, could you walk us to how you ended up in this place? Absolutely. Yeah, I am, I'm really excited for the third Global Congress. The faith sport community, the Christianity and sport community is one that I, I love so much. So I'm really glad to be a part of it still. So my, my journey to being a part of this Christianity and sport community is sort of funny. It, like I mentioned, I was playing sports in college and participating in different sports ministries. So my, my first level of engagement was very much just on the ground, being involved with practitioners um, while I was in college, I was, um, at one of athletes in actions, ultimate training camps. And that is where I met, um, John White, who, um, professor at Baylor's Truett Seminary. And he was sort of advertising for his sports ministry program. And it was like this aha moment for me of like, whoa, I could study that. Um, and I was really interested. And, and so I got connected to John White and I wound up going to seminary after college, which I never thought that I would do. Like, I didn't even know what seminary was. My family was like, what does this mean? Are you going to become a nun? And I was like, oh my gosh, I hope not. Um, like I had no idea what I was really getting myself into. I just knew that I really wanted a theological foundation for whatever it was I was going to do next. So um, was fortunate enough to be able to pursue my MDiv with a concentration in sport ministry, sport theology following college. And I was able to study with John and Cindy White, who have since founded the Faith and Sports Institute at Baylor. And I just had a very positive experience. Like I mentioned earlier, education for me has been really worshipful. So it was really personally formative as well as intellectually while I was in seminary and was able to think really deeply um, and develop a theology of sport that, you know, I could use those lenses for other areas of my life. Um, but while I was in seminary, I noticed that the questions that I was most curious about were the ones that weren't getting answered that often. Um, and they were really 
theological, anthropological questions like, well, what is the human person and what are the parts of a human person and what makes up a good person and how does a person become good? And theology absolutely touches at those questions. Um, I was really interested in areas of like spiritual formation and discipleship while in seminary, but I, I kind of realized that I needed to probably circle back to psychology. Um, and so since then I have started a doctoral program in Baylor's Department of Psychology and Neuroscience. And I study in um, a lab that does social psychology and personal uh, and personality psychology, sort of honing in on positive psychology. And so I study with Dr. Sarah Schnicker in her Science of Virtues lab. And we're really interested in measurement, development, um, understanding antecedents and consequences of virtues, how to develop them in diverse populations, um, as well as spirituality as, as well. So I'm really, I just feel like I could pinch myself every day. Like I love the context I'm in, I'm in of getting to really still lean on my theological training and use that as a lens and a foundation. But am now in a context where I can learn different methodologies, different empirical methodologies to answer specific questions about humans and how we can be good and how we can pursue flourishing. Um, so that's a little bit about my journey post-college and, and the way that I'm so fortunate to still be connected to the Christianity and sport community. Well, you've chosen quite a lab to work in. Dr. Schnicker is a, a former guest on the Sport Faith Life podcast. We had a wonderful conversation with her about the virtue of patience in sport, uh, something that, that really um, resonated with so many of our listeners and so excited that, that you're here and, and doing, doing work with, within her lab and studying under her. Um, I wonder if you can speak a little bit more to uh, the research that you're specifically engaging in as you go through this program. Yes, I love getting to work with Sarah. She is just one of those really great leaders where she's like very, very competent, but also really high character. So it's really fun to be um, learning from her. So a couple of things that I'm involved with right now that are really exciting to me, um, Sarah is a part of a um, Templeton um, grant in which we are um, looking at how explicitly Christian communities can develop virtues. And so we're partnering with um, some Christian study centers that are affiliated with secular universities and looking at virtue development in college students longitudinally. And so we're launching data collection um, this fall and we're really excited to really examine how being a part of a particular meta narrative that provides you this particular meta identity, how that um, uniquely influences the cultivation of virtues as well as other outcomes. So that's really, really fun and exciting. Um, another area, of research that I've become really interested in over the past probably six months is um, the contingencies of self-worth literature, um, which this is going to be really unsurprising to both of you why this is interesting, or probably everyone listening. Like, it's this idea that self-esteem is not 
actually globally affected by all areas of life, rather that people are selective about what influences their sense of dignity and value, and that there are specific domains in people's life in which they are staking their sense of self-worth. Um, different areas that have been identified are um, morality, others approval, academic competency, physical appearance, etc. But, you know, it's really obvious to me that people in sports are very much staking their sense of self-worth on their athletic performance. And that was really my story. Like, <laughs> I've heard it say that psychology isn't so much research as it is me search. And that is, that is <laughs> really what, like, sort of what inspired my interest is thinking through, oh, wow, yeah, people are really staking their sense of value in specific domains. And unsurprisingly, that's really bad for us. There are a lot of adverse outcomes associated with having contingent self-worth, but pretty much everyone does. So it's a really fun intersection for me to think theologically about self-worth, as well as thinking through um, psychologically, you know, what's going on here? How can we buffer and cope with these adverse outcomes? So my, a couple of colleagues and I are um, launching some data collection this month, looking at how different um, domains of contingency relate to different virtue and religious and well-being outcomes. So you've opened up a couple of uh, really interesting topics there with both of those sort of um, explanations of the research that you're interested in. I, I, maybe I'll start with the second one there. And I'm, um, I'm interested in this idea of uh, selective self-worth and, mm -hmm. and in the world of sport, um, you're almost saying that at this point it's unavoidable and, you know, as you proceed in sport, as you advance, as you're successful, you're going to have a bit of self-worth. And, uh, because of that, it, you know, you're going to tie that identity, um, maybe carry over that identity to some other things. I don't know but you're at the front end of collecting some data on this. And so maybe I'm asking more about hypothesis than, than proof, but uh, how do we get to the place that we can actually engage, right? I'm, I'm gonna engage and I'm, I'm engaging in a competitive environment where success is gonna be rewarded, right? Mm -hmm. I'm in that space. And that is going to have an effect on me to stop it from having an effect on me seems to be pretty futile. What? what are our human strategies in that space or what, and maybe I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out like what options do we have other than withdrawal and maybe withdrawal is the, the answer. No, those are such, those are such great questions. And Brian, you really quickly picked up on the same questions that I have, because really the main driving question behind this line of research that I'm hoping to kick off is like, having contingent self-worth is like pretty harmful for us. So how do we cope? Like, how do we buffer against that? What are the options? So the first thing I wanna just point out is that um, self-worth contingency is distinct from domain importance. So what I mean is that an area of life can be really important for you. Um, it could be important for a variety of reasons with or without 
you staking your um, sense of self-worth on it. So what I mean by that is maybe you have a job and it's really important for you to do well in the job because you are providing for your family, you need income, but maybe it's not that important to your sense of value or dignity as a person um, that you do really well in that job. Um, on the other hand, I think for a lot of athletes, I think that athletes and coaches, athletic performance is both an important domain in that it's meaningful, or maybe it, it's your actual job, um, or maybe you love it, it's your passion, or maybe all your friends are, are doing it with you. Like it can be important to you. And it is often really um, a huge source of your sense of self-worth. So domain importance and, and self-worth contingency, they are, they are discriminate, um, but we often see in sports that they are uniquely connected. So like, what do we do with this? What are the options? I, it's, I think about it theologically and I think about it psychologically because theologically, I just want to say, let's not have it. Like we, our faith is completely an antidote and a source of freedom from having to prove ourselves and prove our worth. You know, like we are created good, we are fallen, yet we are created good in the image of God and also bought with the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So theologically, I think like the Christian faith has a lot to offer in terms of buffering against this problem of having contingent self-worth. Um, psychologically, it has been suggested that instead of pursuing the bolstering of our self-esteem, we should pursue different types of goals. So there was this interesting movement at the turn of the century where like a lot of psychologists, a lot of social and personality psychologists who study self-esteem noticed that self-esteem was associated with some good outcomes, like good academic outcomes, good professional outcomes. Just a simple association, like there was no directionality. We didn't know if one was causing the other. Um, and so there were, there were like a handful of studies and interventions trying to increase self-esteem in kids in schools. And it did not increase success or achievement. So that, that was really a sign to psychologists of like, oh, it seems like having you know, a, healthy, a healthily high level of self-esteem is good and associated with good things, but it's not the cause of success. So having a high self-esteem does not necessarily mean you will be successful in different endeavors. And so there was, this movement to try to understand like, what do we do with self-esteem? Like, should we try to bolster it or should we just not think about it? But apparently it's good. And so it's been suggested by psychologists like Jennifer Crocker who have studied um, self-worth extensively that instead of pursuing the superordinate goal of bolstering my self-worth, I should pursue a superordinate goal of transcendent prosociality. So like, instead of trying to make me feel better about myself, I should pursue trying to be spiritually connected to something bigger than myself. 
and actually think through what are my values um, and like, how can I live those out? And so like, I feel like as Christians, we hear that and we're like, duh, like, yes, you should do that. Um, but psychologists, it takes us a little bit longer to come to these conclusions sometimes. So, so I think one area that has been suggested to cope with these adverse consequences of having continued self-worth is trying to like self-affirm our pro-social values and trying to pick transcendent goals and that picking those goals is going to serve us more than picking a goal of bolstering my own self-worth. Another really interesting line of research is um, Kristen Neff, who's at UT Austin, has studied self-compassion. And that's a really different approach. And that approach is essentially saying, I'm going to be kind and accept myself instead of even pursuing a different type of goal. So like that approach is, is one of self-kindness and thinking through my shared humanity and trying to be mindful and not over-identify with my failures too much. Um, and that I think also is probably a really useful character strength to develop because what you're doing is you're trying to offer yourself compassion and kindness simply because you're a human with dignity who deserves it, not based on anything that you're doing. So I like how self-kindness sort of directly combats this idea of having to prove that you're worthy of having self-compassion in the first place. So the affirmation of values, the self-compassion are a couple areas that psychologists are suggesting is going to be a healthier approach to understanding self-esteem. Um, as a Christian, I, I can't not think about this theologically and, and, and just really want, would want for people to derive their sense of self worth from being loved unconditionally by God. And there, so um, Jennifer Crocker, who I already mentioned, she developed um, a measure of contingent self-worth in 2003, and it identifies a handful of domains of contingency, like I mentioned, like academics or being better than other people or whatever. And there is a God's love domain of contingency. And so um, in the study that my colleagues and I are conducting this month, we're really curious to see what, like how that particular domain is related to certain outcomes. And, and sort of our, our plan of attack is we're going to use latent profile analysis to look at how these different domains of self-worth are grouping. So we're using a person-centered approach versus a variable-centered approach to basically look like, are certain people like mostly high in all of these domains or are they mostly low? Or are some people mostly high in external sources of domains and then lower in internal, or are some people more or higher in just the internal and sources of domain? And, and so one hunch that I have out of a couple is, is, to, is that I, I would guess that people who have mostly external sources of self-worth like physical appearance or competition um, or approval from other people I, I bet that is 
related to more negative well-being outcomes. I, it's just a guess that I have. You don't like LPA analysis, UTIP is like harder to have a priori hypotheses because it's a little bit more data-driven, but it is a prediction we have. And then, you know, likewise, I would guess that people who have higher sense of self-worth staked on these internal sources like God's love for me or my values and morality, um, or even maybe like family support, I get, I would guess that those are going to be related to better well-being outcomes and probably uh, it's hard to say, but like even maybe greater virtue outcomes. Well, that's really interesting, Elizabeth. And um, it, it, it makes, makes sense what you're saying. This is, this feels like, by the way, like not psychology 101. This feels like social psychology 701. Like I'm in, uh, I'm in grad level <laughs> level psychology classes here, hearing you speak, and I love how you articulate it. And I think some of what you're you're you know, you're using this this language that probably is unfamiliar to a lot of our listeners, but the way that you're articulating it is really sounds like there's there's some something really inherent about Christian Christianity that we can learn from that we can bring to the table in studying the humanity of, of psychology, right? And so when you talk about transcendent pro social uh, transcendent prosociality, uh, you know, we're thinking about the ways in which I, I'm thinking about the ways in which Christianity naturally offers something there, right? Something bigger than oneself that is promoting the kingdom of Christ, but also talking about self-compassion as, as maybe not a competing, but an alternative option. You know, we're thinking about the, the golden rule and the ways in which we, we treat ourselves with respect. I mean, that, that's part of the golden rule, right? Treat others how you would treat yourself. So it's about treating yourself well also, at least in terms of Christian virtue. So uh, I love hearing all of that and the ways in which you've combined your different uh, disciplines of graduate training. And it seems to be leading to some really exciting questions you're asking and hopefully some really positive uh, data results that will lead to, to great publications that will make you even more famous than you are already. You talked, oh, about, you talked about self uh, sort of domain contingency and self-worth. And, and that's going to lead to this next question I have for you, where we want to spend the bulk of our time here hearing about uh, a little bit of a teaser uh, related to what you're going to be discussing at your keynote at the Congress. So uh, here you are as a, a grad student, as a wife, as a, 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 an athlete, maybe former athlete, but still physically active, um, a psychologist, you know, someone with a seminary degree, you have all these different sort of titles uh, that, that, that you said began with being a soccer player before all else, which is awesome. Um, so, so this is an opportunity for you to sort of show your, your, your prowess as a speaker. And, and I wonder if you can share with us a little bit about uh, your thinking related to all of this and, and, and maybe a little bit about the topic. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Chad. Um, where, where I'm hoping to go with my, my opportunity to speak at the Third Global Congress is I want to think about virtue development in sports and what are the key ingredients to that? And I, I plan to sort of set a foundation in talking about how religion and spirituality are a really unique context for virtue development in the way that they're providing um, this very particular meta-narrative. Um, and then I'm you know, also gonna point out that sports are also this unique um, environment and opportunity for virtue development, but it depends. And, and I think the argument that I'm planning to make 
is it depends on the leadership. It like whether or not sports are going to cultivate virtues in the people who are participating is going to depend on the leadership and the type of culture he or she promotes. Um, and I, I kind of want to make this argument that leaders have these really unique opportunities to embody and model and also provide opportunities for other people to enact virtues and also provide opportunities to reflect on the enactment of virtues um, in sports. Like I, I essentially want to make this argument that like coaches or chaplains or, or these leaders in sports, even captains, like you are the crux. You really are like your role is crucial. It's, it's the hinge here as to whether, because the research on like the whole question of like, do sports build character? Like the research is mixed. Like it honestly is like, we want to be like, oh yeah, for sure it does. But I'm kind of going to say like, it depends. And it depends on us, on, on Christian leaders in sports. And then what I'm really excited to do is think through specific examples of virtues in sports and then provide really concrete practices for leaders to really promote the development. So I'm gonna pick just a handful um, of virtues, probably just a couple, and I'm gonna dive into those a little bit and think through, okay, leaders, like how are you going to promote the cultivation and enactment of these um, in your leadership? You know, Chad and I have been teaching and coaching in Christian environments for a long time and talking about these sorts of things. And I can tell you that when you say that the evidence on whether sports builds character is mixed, people may boo you. Um, <laughs> it, is, uh, it is a long-held, uh, strongly held belief. Um, and yet, uh, to come at it from a data perspective is certainly helpful. And I think you gave us a great teaser there for where you'd like to go. And I wonder if, rather than unpacking that here, because I want people to go and, and hear it there, I wonder if I could ask you just to hone in as we close, close this out on one example that you've experienced, because we tend to personalize these things, right? So maybe one example of a leader, uh, maybe in a sport environment or a coach in a sport environment who uh, embodied or practiced something that uh, you would say did help foster character or in this case, virtue uh, in those around him or her? That's a great question. Um, I will talk about, I'm gonna give an example of a virtue that I'm not gonna talk about in the keynote, I think. I think that would be helpful. But so I'm gonna, I wanna think about the virtue of accountability um, which again, I don't really plan to dive into the keynote, but I think it's a great um, example to think through the virtue of accountability, the psychological research on it is, is really more cutting edge. It's like newer, um, Dr. Charlotte Whitfleet, who is professor of psychology at Hope College, she has pioneered some of this research in measurement and really thinking through like, what is the virtue of accountability? And it's really this idea of being accountable to specific others and being accountable for 
certain behaviors of mine. And so one example um, of like a leader who did this really well in my experience was it was my junior year competing in soccer at Hope. And my coach, Lee Sears, decided that she wanted her players to get better at giving and receiving feedback, which is a really key element of accountability. And so what she did is she made these little groups of four. And once a week, it was like after our Friday practice, she'd be like, okay, get in your quads. It's time for, it's time to hold each other accountable. And what she asked each of her players to do, and she wasn't a part of these quads. Like we were, we, she wasn't hovering over us. We were doing them on our own. She asked there, you know, it's a group of four and three people would tell, you know, one other, the things that that player were doing well on the field to providing some, some positive feedback about what was going well, and then also offer that player suggestions for improvement on the field. And so I played center forward. And so for example, my teammates might say, Hey, you've been finishing well in the air or, Hey, you've been really vocal and that's really good. You need to keep doing that. But they might say when you receive the ball, with your back to the goal, with the defender on you, you should start playing quicker. Or when you receive it like that, you need to take your first touch this way so you can find this midfielder. And it was just an opportunity to, for all of us to practice giving and receiving both positive and you know, critical feedback. And I really think that that helped us as a team really get used to accountability because we were doing it every single week and we were flexing and strengthening that accountability muscle being accountable to each other for each other's well for our own performance on the field so i think that's one really great example of a leader who was really intentional about trying to cultivate a certain character strength in her team that's really interesting and a great example. And like Brian said, these examples are so helpful for us to understand some of these concepts. So I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to, uh, to this particular talk that you have and um, the ways in which you're bringing in some of your own real world experiences. I mean, that, that's part of the fun of it, right? Is, um, is, is when we get to hear a keynote that, that brings in something that's, that's sort of unique intellectually or something that's new, original intellectually, which it sounds like you'll be doing, but also offering a bit of yourself too. And so while you shared the first part of that, and you just gave an example that you're not going to talk about in your keynote from your personal life, I wonder, I wonder if, if you've thought about ways in which you sort of will be sharing yourself as you speak, right? Of course, we're asking you to share as, um, as a social psychologist, as someone with a seminary degree. Um, but, but how do you, how do you insert yourself into all of this? How do you, in some ways, you know, that, that, that offers a bit of a narrative that offers uh, something that, that's, that has some entertainment value or allows us to connect with you. How do you navigate those two things, offering yourself and offering your content into the presentation? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really great question. Um, I think that, I think one of the most courageous things a person can do 
is to be vulnerable. Like I really think that vulnerability is an example of the virtue of courage. Um, and so I think that I have been fortunate to have, have been led by some really vulnerable and brave leaders like John and Cindy White, um, who are at Baylor University, like I mentioned, like, I think that they're the best example of courage and vulnerability and humility and leadership. And so I aspire, I aspire to put into practice what I study. I really do. Um, and probably one of the biggest ways that that will come through um, in this area of research in this keynote is, is probably on some of that self-worth um, research because having like the contingent self-worth stuff, like that is my story. It really is. I was, I was the performance-based identity athlete very much. Like I was the roller coaster identity player where when I had a good training, I was like, okay, like we're doing this, I'm okay. But if I had a bad training or a bad performance, it really got to me. I felt really, really poorly about myself. Um, so like that, that really was my story. And what I love so much about, again, like this Christian sport community is that I can say this, like, I can say this really openly and people are going to understand this is like, my faith was what freed me from that roller coaster identity. My faith is what freed me from having very highly contingent self-worth staked on my athletic performance. Um, and it was just this message of like, it's not about me. It's not about my success. Like my success is not what's giving myself value and worthiness. Um, like really it is, it's less about doing and it's more about accepting the gift of being unconditionally accepted and loved by God. And so I love that I'm able to be in a space where I can intersect those ideas, this, this psychology of continued self-worth with this, with this theological perspective of God knows us all the way. And despite that really loves us and accepts us no matter how good, no matter how poorly we perform. Well, amen to that. Uh, thank you so much, Elizabeth. This has been uh, a great pleasure to get to know you a little, to hear a little bit about your journey and also the things that you plan to talk about at the Third Global Congress on Sport and Christianity, which will be in Cambridge in just a few short weeks. And so we're looking forward to seeing you in person there uh, and interacting with you. And we are also looking forward to interacting with many people around the around the world that will meet us there for the third global congress thanks so much for spending a little time with us today on sport Day thanks so much for having me you guys really enjoyed chatting thanks for listening to the sport faith life podcast Find previous episodes at sportfaithlife.com and on Apple Podcasts. We're releasing each episode with a blog post authored by our guests, so you can find the blog for this podcast and other posts at the same website, sportfaithlife.com. <laughs>